They have a combined 12 years in the National Football League. They combined for 65 career sacks, 232 tackles, one Pro Bowl selection, and one Employee of the Month award. That's just a straight shooter with upper management written all over him. It's Train and Gross on the All-AZ Podcast Network. Welcome in episode 83 of Train and Gross. B-Train, Bertrand Berry, Mike Gross, Sean Crespin, thanks for finding us. Hope you're doing well. We're all remote this week as we bring you this week's edition, episode 83. I looked it up. I'm going to go with Ted Hendricks, formerly of the Oakland Raiders, and he was known as the Mad Stork. And uh, (laughs) he was mad and uh, all kinds of crazy antics from uh, number 83 from the Raiders. Yeah, he he had a lot of different things going on. But one thing he did, he played football at a very high level. And so you, you remember him for... A lot of different things, but most importantly, Mike, we remember him all, or we all remember him for being a very, very good football player. When I was looking it up, I did not realize this. Ted Hendricks played his college football at Miami, but he was born in Guatemala. Wow. I don't know if there's a lot of uh, lot of uh, NFL uh, alum that uh, hail from uh, Guatemala, but uh, he... Um, his father was a, an airline employee and just happened to be born in Guatemala. So there you go. Uh, wow. Hey, lots, lots to awesome. get the Hall of Fame game in the rearview mirror. We got officially week one of the NFL exhibition, exhibition excuse me, season starting up a f- three games only now with the new setup uh, for the players. And B-Train, I know, you know, throughout the course of your long and successful NFL career, you kind of approached the exhibition games from a different point of view, depending on what your personal situation was. You know, you, you tell some great stories, which you'll do here, about how you needed those early in your career, but later in your career, you had nothing to do with them uh, once you were established and knew what your role was on the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, that's correct, Mike. I remember my freshman, or my freshman, my rookie year being in the NFL, my first preseason game was in San Diego. And I remember putting that uniform on for the first time. I remember the excitement of having that that NFL logo on my jersey and and as I was putting it on it 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 just felt right it's like man this is the first of many times hopefully that I get to put this this type of uniform on and uh it was a great experience and then once I got to Denver I was a free agent off the street and so the the preseason games kind of took on a different life as you talked about Mike where I needed each and every rep to make the squad because I mm-hmm. was a long shot to make the squad once I was able to to land with the Broncos. But then once I came to the Arizona Cardinals, I was a high-priced free agent and a guy that was a quote-unquote leader of the team and, and at that point an established veteran. So preseason, it took on a different light yet again. It became something where you just want to get your couple series and, and feel good and then get the hell out of there. So it, it's funny how depending on, as you said, where you are in your career – how you approach preseason right. games because they're necessary in all areas, in all aspects of it, but you take on a different mental approach depending on where you are in your career. And, and when, when you were at that stage of your career with the Cardinals B train and, you know, you knew what your, your position, as you said, where you were going to be on this team, but in that locker room for the exhibition games, particularly the first few before they did any cutdowns. What's the mood? What's the atmosphere in that locker room? Because there are guys, and even look at this year's edition of the Cardinals, where 
you got guys that are playing for that roster spot, or you've got guys that were picked high, like a Zayvon Collins who needs to get out there and prove himself, or a guy like Eno Benjamin who's in year three saying, hey, maybe this is the year he bursts on the scene and he's going to get a lot of carries. What's what's the atmosphere? Because, again, you've got people in different stages of that career, their career and how they're looking at this game, but all sharing that same locker room for these games. The one thing I would say, Mike, is that the locker room is pretty quiet. I know for the guys that feel secure, that are veterans and they've got the big contracts, uh, they're respectful of the, the guys that are fighting for their prospective lives, if you will. And they understand what's at stake. They see these guys doing what they need to do in practice every single day. So to know that when it's game day, this is their, this is their Super Bowl, Mike. This is their opportunity to go out there and really make an impact and an impression on not just the team that they're playing for in the moment, but for the 31 other teams that may be watching that film and need a free agent uh, uh, for their for their roster. And, and, yeah. and maybe there, there's uh, a log jam at a certain position with the team that they're at, but there may be a certain need for another team. And if you go out there and you show well and you perform when your numbers call, then it's a great chance that you'll get picked up with some other team if it doesn't work out with the team that you're already with. Sometimes those guys, they may have a log jam, but they just say to themselves, he's too good. We can't let this guy get out and yeah. walk out of the door. And so they find a roster spot for him. But more times than not, you'll see that guy, if he doesn't make it with that team, he'll get picked up soon enough once he clears waivers. Well, and speaking of watching that waiver wire, watching guys that are available, this Cardinals team particularly – I think in the cornerback position, they need help desperately. So they will be watching very, very closely for, for guys that get cut and become available at that position. Uh, you could also say that uh, they need help at the edge rusher position. Uh, and so, you know, that's going to be another uh, thing that you're going to watch and see. And, you know, and again, if you're in, in one of those positions, obviously you hope you can make an impact and, and you know, uh, get them to say, look, we've got the guy here. We're not going to find anything better on the street. Um, but, but again, you know, if you're watching this Cardinals team, you've got to be really concerned about, I would think, about particularly those two positions as they begin the, uh, the games tomorrow night uh, as we record this on, 30, on Thursday evening as they play uh, Cincinnati Friday. Mike, I got to say, I have a soft spot in my heart for those guys that are at the bottom of the roster that are fighting for their lives. Being one of those guys myself uh, during my time in Denver, if I don't go out and perform during that time, I don't have the last nine years of my career. Right. So I understand how valuable those reps are. Sometimes guys complain about getting too many reps, but I just remember in those moments, I couldn't get enough reps, Mike. And even though my tongue was hanging down on the floor, I still appreciated every single opportunity that I had to make an impression with not only the, the Broncos, but maybe the other teams that, that may have had a need. Sure. And I was just fortunate enough that – the Denver Broncos found a spot for me, even though they didn't really need me from a number standpoint. And I was able to to stay there for three years and then come to Arizona and the rest is history. I was just going to say the rest is history. All right, B-Train, uh, the other side of that, you know, as we prepare for the upcoming season, guys that are coming back off of injury that have to utilize this time in camp as well as game action uh, to, to, to demonstrate – first and foremost to themselves, but then to the team that they're back, they're in the right, headed in the right direction. And two guys that come to mind that I think uh, the Cardinals are going to count on uh, first on the defensive side, Dennis Gardick, a guy that I know 
we've talked about in the past, a guy that came from a small school, Division II school, but has really, really, when he was given the opportunity, played exceptionally well. And, you know, what you call, uh, what's that term, the high motor guy. Um, mm. And then the other side of the coin, a guy who uh, is a fan favorite for sure and really ingratiated himself after he was injured is Max Williams, the tight end uh, who mm. uh, had the knee injury, but, you know, sent out videos of himself uh, from his home watching the game, giving out the trophies. But this is an important time for guys coming back in their career as well. There's no doubt about it, Mike. You've got to get that timing back. You've got to get that rhythm back. You've got to get a feel for the game again because if you've spent some time out, you lose that. And, and not being around the guys, not being in the meetings, not uh, getting that, that information and, and, and having that, that, that timing and that uh, – that familiarity, if you will, with your teammates, you, you've got to work like hell to get all that back. So I know for for those those two in particular, uh, they're, they're going to have a different perspective about training camp and those uh, preseason uh, reps. But I think most players on the field, if you've got that uniform on, you need to take that, those reps very seriously. And even though you may not play as many, the reps that you get, you've got to make them count, Mike. You had you had injuries that ended your your season. Uh, when you come back the following, years. Uh, when you come back the following year, how much of it is physical, and how much is it mental? When you first get out there, and in your case, it was shoulder and biceps. I recall, um, you know, those types triceps, of injuries, triceps, triceps yeah. Yep. Uh, how much of that is injury? The first time you went to make a hit on somebody or have contact, um, you know. And again, I'm thinking of Mac, Max Williams with the knee. Uh, Dennis Gardick's and the, you know, how much of it can, because, you know, NFL teams, they've got great positions, facilities, medical staffs, you know, so they're not going to let you out there until they're sure that physically you're, I'll use the term. Okay. Um, mm. But a lot of it, I got to believe is mentally the first hit, the first contact, that sort of thing. The one thing that, well, I, I, if, if I had to give a number to it, Mike, I would say 80% mental, 20% physical. And make no mistake, you have to be able to defend yourself out on the field. That's yep. part of the job of, of communicating with the, the doctors and everybody that's, that's helping to try to get you back on the field. You have to be honest with them in those times. There's going to be times where you feel good. There's going to be times where you don't feel so good. But you definitely have to get that first hit under your belt, whether it's in practice or a preseason game just to know that your body can respond in a proper way so that you can withstand uh, those type of hits and, and that type of collision throughout the course of a season because you can be mentally uh, into it and involved as you'd like, but if your body just can't hold up, then it's going to manifest itself in some form or fashion, and you, you, you have to know. And, and the only way that you can find out, Mike, is you've got to be able to, to go head on with, with, with the – a guy that's either on your team or on another team. And and the only way to get ready for football is to play football. So you can't simulate that in, in drills. You can't yep. simulate that, uh, you know, on the side. The only way you can do it is either in practice or in an actual game. This is the part of the podcast where we pivot away from the Cardinals and give you, B-Train, some credit for something you called months ago. Uh, stories breaking now that – after all, that maybe the Cleveland Browns may be interested in considering acquiring Jimmy Garoppolo from the San Francisco 49ers. The Deshaun Watson question is still up in the air as they wait for the appeal. We'll get into that part of the story in a minute. 
uh, 49ers obviously have said, we're moving on. And uh, you said it months ago. You said, this is a match made in heaven. You've got a team in the Browns that, you know, they at the time they didn't know what the suspension, suspension would be, and they still don't know. Uh, and you've got a quarterback who has one year left on his contract who is auditioning for the future or his future in the NFL. It seems like a win-win situation where Jimmy Garoppolo can come in and play and play at a level better than anybody else besides Sean Watson, Deshaun Watson on that Browns roster. So, you, you know, just go ahead and take your victory lap, pat yourself on the back for that call. Well, Mike, I don't want to take a victory lap. It just made so much sense. When I've seen Jimmy Garoppolo at his best, he's been surrounded by very good teams. Yes, he did some things to help his teams advance and, and get his team to a Super Bowl with the San Francisco 49ers, as well as another NFC championship game. Right. But it wasn't as if the roster was depleted and he was just a one-man army out there. And I think you look at this situation with the Cleveland Browns, yes, you're, gonna, you're not going to have Deshaun Watson for a period of time. Who knows? Right now is six weeks, could be 17 weeks. We don't know what they're going to do with this appeal process. We're just going to have to wait and see. But if you're Jimmy Garoppolo, we know that the 49ers have their guy in Trey Lance. They, they gave up too much capital to get him, Mike, to not play him. So it's not necessarily that they didn't love Jimmy Garoppolo. I just think with you – had a, a player in Trey Lance and you gave up so much to bring him in, you have to make good on that decision. And, and I think for Jimmy G, if he really wants to show that he can still be that guy, then you have a great situation with the Cleveland Browns who are, if they're arguably one of the better rosters in the NFL, as far as top to bottom offense, defense, special teams, they've got just about everything you need to be successful. Mm -hmm. And if he can go in there and show that he can, guide that ship in the right direction for a year i think that bodes well for him getting a big time contract somewhere else where there's going to be a need for a quarterback and and i think he can help the cleveland browns as well as help himself in the whole process and meanwhile b train uh as you and i were talking in the previous weeks there is no new news to share as we record this on deshaun watson he's awaiting the appeals process the nfl has decided to appeal that six-game suspension. News circulating this week that um, part of the reason that the uh, the NFL, Roger Goodell, uh, announced that they were going to uh, appeal that suspension uh, was that the other owners were secretly not very happy with the Cleveland Browns because of the contract that they gave Deshaun Watson. And this was their opportunity to kind of extract a little bit of revenge to say, whoa, 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 six games. No, you're going to pay a steeper penalty than that. And the issue that these owners had was twofold. Number one, they kind of gamed the system where they they backloaded that contract, knowing uh, that perhaps a full year suspension was a possibility. So they only gave them a million dollars in year one. But the bigger sticking point to the other owners around the NFL was the 100 percent guaranteed portion of that contract. That is something, and you've told this story over and over again. It's not how much you sign for. It's how much money you actually get out of the full length of that contract when when it's up. And for the Cleveland Browns to unilaterally impose this 100% guarantee, that has the possibility to make life difficult for the rest of the NFL owners. It really does, Mike. And they become more and more like baseball, like basketball like hockey, where there are guaranteed contracts, fully guaranteed contracts. And the thing with football was the injury issue. They just didn't want to guarantee all the money because you didn't want to have that, that player 
have that much against the salary cap and then he's not available due to injury and and part of it too was just you know they had a good thing going they just didn't want to mess it up and so if you have a situation where the quarterback the franchise guy gets not only garrett fully guaranteed but 230 million dollars guaranteed yeah there's going to be a lot of people around the league like oh my god what are we going to do when our guy comes up because we can say what we want about deshaun watson he's a fine quarterback but he's not a a top five quarterback right now in the NFL. There are better quarterbacks at the position than Deshaun Watson. And some of those guys who are better are going to be coming up on contracts in the near future. And they're going to be looking squarely at Deshaun Watson's deal and say, Hey, that's my deal at about, at about two, $3 million to it. And we're good to go. And, and a lot of the owners don't want to fully guarantee their, their, their quarterbacks or any player for that right. matter, because all that does is just open up Pandora's box. And now you get to a situation where everybody is going to be getting more uh, guaranteed money. And, and that's just something that the owners just don't want to do at this moment. It's just interesting. And, and I guess in this day of social media and instant news, how these stories eventually leak out. And, you know, I know the owners typically like to put that united front out there. We are the owners and, and we we tongue-in-cheek we give them credit for protecting the shield but you know you look at this situation where they're not happy with the brown the other owners not happy with the browns you talk about and we covered it on the podcast where the uh, uh the ownership of the uh the, the rams saddled the rest of the owners mm. with that relocation buyout that they had mm. to pay to the city and county of st louis um mm. we sit and wait for some movement on the situation with daniel snyder uh, about how you know he has turned into a pariah with the other owners, not necessarily because of the way he ran his franchise, but because he was cooking the books when it came to revenue sharing. So it's just interesting to see little cracks in this ownership united front. And look, they still control all the uh, you know all the, the the parts of this, the purse strings and everything else. But just interesting how it's starting to leak out these different little stories. It's amazing, Mike, how many different uh, variations of this story um, Deshaun Watson has exposed so much towards the owners and, and how they feel not only about the players, but how they feel about one another. Because keep in mind, Mike, the biggest problem that a lot of guys that are have either played in the NFL or currently play in the NFL is that there's such a heavy hand towards the players. But then when you have the same situations for owners and general managers, there seems to be a, you know, they move the, they move the goal line to, yeah. to fit whatever narrative that they want. And, and uh, all we ask for is consistency and fairness. And right. they don't seem to be interested in that at all. And I just feel like with this appeal, the NFL, the owners are doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And if you have that situation, it, yeah, they, they, ultimately come out looking good mike but the way that they got there yeah. looks so bad that, that there's going to be some scrapnel that they're going to have to answer for when this is all said and done and, and i'd love to be a fly on the wall the next time all the nfl owners get together just to hash this stuff out and see uh you know it'd be it'd be nice to have their own special you know like we do the hard knocks on individual teams we do a hard knocks the ownership edition when they have their next meetings together all right we're about a month away from, from the start of the NFL season about two weeks, three weeks now from the start of the college football season. I want to keep the story local here. We talked about last week, how ASU and the U of a 
uh, came up near the bottom when the media did their Pac-12 preseason football poll. Uh, not probably a surprise uh, at, at a kind of a macro level, but Chris Cartman, who does a, a marvelous job covering ASU football, he's the publisher of Sun Devil Source. Um, I, I saw a tweet from him, and it caught my eye for a couple different reasons. Uh, ASU is down to 70-ish, give or take, scholarship football players entering camp this year, which is believed to be the fewest ever. And they're particularly mm. thin at the linebacker and wide receiver position as they – and this was written before camp actually started – Right now, they have five scholarship players at linebacker and six scholarship players at wide receiver. Uh, and we'll start with your time at Notre Dame. Uh, and you were telling me this before we started recording. I thought it was fascinating. Um, the role that linebackers play on a college or any football team, but specifically we're talking here college football. At Notre Dame, which I think is probably on par with other big-time college football programs, how many linebackers uh, would you say when you were there were on scholarship uh, when you were playing for the Fighting Irish? Mike, I would say anywhere from 12 to 15 guys were on scholarship as far as the linebacker position. Think about it. You've got three different positions. You've got the Mike, Will, and the Sam. And if you go to a 3-4, now you've got even more guys. You, you probably got uh, 15 to, to 18 guys because now you've got four linebackers and you got to be at least two to three deep at every position. But then it's not just about on defense, Mike. Now you've got to bring in the element of special teams because now your linebackers, your fullbacks, your tight ends, these are predominantly the positions that make up a lot of your special teams players. So the fact that they don't have those numbers not only cripple their defense, but it also cripples their special teams because now you're going to be asking starters to come in and, and, and play more – uh, of a role that they were that they normally wouldn't have to play in. and so uh, attrition becomes more of an issue mm-hmm. and 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 guys wearing down towards the end of the season become more of an issue so uh, there's a lot of ramifications to the fact that they don't have a lot of guys on scholarship well and and I recall it was about uh, a year ago that rightfully so and this is the uh, my my uh, free shot again at Kevin Sumlin where whatever he was doing in Tucson it was not recruiting football players towards the end of his tenure down there. And you recall that uh, they had to have tryouts for the U of A football team. And they were getting grilled, rightfully so, for announcing, hey, we're having tryouts. Ever think about playing college football? Why don't you come on out and see if you can make the Wildcats football team? I looked up the news story from the Tucson newspaper. They were down to six scholarship linebackers when they decided to have have tryouts. So – now, granted, that was midway through the season, and a couple of those six were already injured. But to your point, they're starting the season with five. And, uh, you know, I, I was thinking strictly what you said at the beginning. You know, here's your different linebacker positions. But the role that linebackers and tight ends in particular play on special teams uh, is sometimes over overlooked. And, um, you know, it's going to be interesting as we keep an eye on that story, which leads me to the whole NCAA situation with the uh, the Sun Devils, and, and we've covered that a lot, and now we're just waiting to see what the penalty is going to be. There are some out there, and I think Sean Crespin lives in this camp that says, "Hey, it's not going to be that bad." You know, maybe give him a slap on the wrist for some scholarships, or tell him they can't go to a bowl game for a year. Um, and there's others out there. Uh, John Wilner, who covers the Pac-12 for the San Jose Mercury News, he thinks that because of the uh, the noise that other teams are making, they want to make an example of ASU. It could be one extreme or the other. It could be someplace in the middle. 
But here's the problem. There's been no news. And Michael Crow came out, the president of ASU came out this week and said, oh, we haven't even heard some of the people that they think they're going to interview. The NCAA hasn't interviewed them. I th- my, my thought is here, whatever, it is, they're letting ASU football die on the vine because you know, we know how competitive recruiting is. And you know that every chance somebody gets to mention, well, gee, we don't even know what the penalty is to ASU. If, if I'm at ASU, like, just please tell me what you're going to do so we can move on with this business, so we can put it behind us, we can pay whatever penalty we have to pay and move forward. But this not knowing is is going to really – it's going to affect the next recruiting class. Mike, it really is one of those where they just want to get it over with. Let's give us our penalty so we can start serving it so we can get done with it and move on with our program and, and uh, our the rest of our lives. And I think the more they twist in the wind, so to speak, the worse it's going to be because if you're a prospective uh, a player that wants to come to ASU, you want to know how – the, the ramifications of this is going to yeah. fall out. Am I going to be able to to play in a bowl? Am I going to be able to play in a conference championship? Will they have a, a, a competitive roster? Will they have enough scholarship players to, to be a competitive team in the Pac-12? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different issues that are going on all at the same time. And the, 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 the longer this goes on, the more the uncertainty around the program as a whole. And, and you just can't have that now, especially with with, with recruits uh, having these demands or having these yeah. uh, things that they're looking for with a respective program. And if you're not meeting those right out of the gate and, and there's a chance that some of those things can be taken away, oh, well, that just makes it that much easier to cross that particular program off a of recruit's list. Yeah. Well, and, and the one thing we know is that uh, recruiting and college athletics, particularly college football, college basketball, but specific to this story, it's a filthy business. Like, the, the other guy will do whatever they have to do to bolster their case. And it's you know, easy. ASU is the easy, ASU's the yeah, easy target. Take it for them. All right, we'll keep an eye on that story as well as the college football season just a couple weeks away uh, from kicking off. All right, on the other side, we're going to get into the NBA. Hey, guess what? Kevin Durant still in the news. And we'll talk about that next on Train and Gross. Train and Gross. Welcome back. Train and Gross. Follow us on Twitter at Train and Gross. It's just that easy. Hey, um, Kevin Durant still with the uh, Brooklyn Nets. Um, since last we met B Train, uh, he had a meeting with the owner of the Nets and said, "Look, I'll stay if you fire your coach and your GM." Um, look, I, I know Kevin Durant gets a lot of leeway because he is a top talent, one of the most talented players in the entire NBA. But at some point. At some point, this story is getting old, and Kevin Durant is not helping himself as this thing plays out. No, Mike, this is this is one of those stories where it's enough already. I think people have Kevin Durant fatigue. I think people look at him as a spoiled individual. When you look at his career, although it's been brilliant on the basketball court, the decisions that he's made have not been the best, and, and they leave you wondering – What's going on inside the brain of Kevin Durant? And to leave Oklahoma City to go to Golden State, a team that's already stacked, then to leave Golden State and then team up with Kyrie Irvin, of all people, and go to Brooklyn as opposed to the New York Knicks, that was one of those that was a head-scratcher. And then when you see the, the whole uh, the pandemic come about and, and Kyrie did what he did, 
it just <clears throat> it just makes you wonder what is Kevin Durant doing? Like who's advising him on on how to make moves throughout the course of the NBA and and to have the to have the gumption to go to an owner and say, hey, make a decision between either me or the coach and the GM. It just kind of makes you wonder what's going on. The, the two words that I gave you off air, Mike, are Kyrie Irving. Because yeah. if, if if that's what he's doing, there there was uh, – Kyrie Irving was saying a lot of these same things. One, we don't need a coach. We're so good. We don't need a coach. And we know that he's butted heads, uh, you know, with the general manager. So with the, with the contract – negotiations and everything there thereof so there there's a lot of moving pieces with this story with Kevin Durant and and you know throw a little side of Kyrie Irving in there because I believe that if he's involved in this either directly or somehow indirectly every step of the way and to make matters worse I'll roll the clock back he officially made his uh, his de- destination known on June 30th uh, that he uh, wanted to either go to Miami or Phoenix. On July 1st, uh, Kevin Durant was paid an eight-figure bonus check mm-hmm. by the New, New Brooklyn uh, Brooklyn Nets. Uh, so, you know, that's rubbing salt in the wound of all of this. And I heard on, uh, I believe it was a local radio station, uh, there was sound of Kevin Durant at the end of the postseason for his Nets when they were eliminated. And they asked him about Steve. when they were swept, Mike. When they were swept by the Celtics, well, they were swept by the Celtics, and they asked about Steve Nash. And Kevin Durant said, "Look, I like playing for Steve Nash. Uh, he's a good coach. You know, he whatever the problem was, it wasn't Steve Nash. And now to change his tune from that time to here, this just kind of adds the layers to this. Um, and like I said, I still, if I'm a Phoenix Suns fan." And at the end of it, do you want Kevin Durant in in a Phoenix Suns uniform? I think you do because, again, you go back to the fact that he is that talent that he is. But all the drama and, you know, what happens when he turns on James Jones? uh, What what happens when – I I don't know. It just, you know, it feels to me like this is just – you disagree. No, I'm just going to say Okay. Hell yeah, you want Kevin Durant. I don't care. If, if you're holding up the Larry O'Brien trophy at the end of June and no matter what happened to get him, if you were able to, to hold that trophy up and say my team is the best in the world that year, all of that will seem worth it. And the one thing that has eluded the Phoenix Suns in the story career of this organization is that Larry O'Brien. They've been close. They've been in the series to play for it but they've never been able to take it home. And, and the one thing that this, this fan base is starving for is an opportunity to hoist that trophy up. Yeah. And if, Kevin, if, you get a, if you have an opportunity to get a Kevin Durant as big of a headache and a pain in the ass as he's been, you still would do everything that you need to do. You can say whatever you want publicly, but behind the back, you're like, hey, yo, man, <laughs> make that deal, man. We, we, Kevin Durant gives us a chance to win because there aren't very many Kevin Durants out there that's why people are, are, are putting up with some of the antics that they're putting up with now because he is one of one. There aren't, uh, there, there aren't a, a bunch of Kevin Durant's out there floating around that you can choose from. Uh, he, he's a unicorn as far as a generational talent, and if you get your hands on him, you automatically become a title contender. Yeah, but... I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I get it. You're, no, you're right, but it's just like I said, it, just, it feels different 
we're recording on August 11th. It feels different on August 11th than it did on June 30th when this story first came out. I guess that's where I'm coming from. But I haven't moved off that. You make the deal if you get the opportunity. But you also know that, man, you got some heartburn while you're waiting to see if it if it materializes, as you said, hosting up that Larry O'Brien trophy, which has eluded you for the entirety of this franchise. Mike, winning cures all. Yeah, We've heard right. that phrase so many times. And it would apply to this situation just like it always applies. Always the voice of reason, B Train. Uh, real quickly, uh, we won't go into it this week, uh, but just in general, the, the win totals uh, were being discussed by some of the NBA experts on ESPN. And, and the regardless, and this is assuming they're, they're running under the assumption that there is no Kevin Durant in Phoenix, that they're running it back with what they got. Uh, a couple things. Uh, that this is still an elite team in the West, but maybe maybe they make a fallback a little bit. Maybe they're not setting win, regular season win records. But maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe they learned something from this past season. Like uh, maybe you, you, you rest a Chris Paul down the stretch so that, you know, he can give you more in the postseason. So maybe you win five, six, seven, eight less games in the regular season. Maybe you're a number two seed instead of a number one seed but you gear up, you prepare mentally, you prepare physically for the postseason, which is such a grind in the NBA. Mike, let me let me break it to you like this. Take 10 wins off of the record. They, they had 64 wins last year, right? You go 54 right. wins, but you get to the finals and you are in a game seven at home. Would you take that scenario right now? Absolutely, I would take that scenario. So who cares about franchise record of wins in the in the regular season? We've seen this team be able to accomplish those things. They've been a number one seed. They've set franchise records. It hasn't produced championships. So now you've got to set you've got to adjust your your goals. Now it's not about setting the franchise record for wins. It's not about having a number one seed. You just want to get to the end. You just want to get to the finish line and be the first one there to cross it. So however that looks, if it's 54 wins if it's 50 wins and you still find a way to to manage the gauntlet of the western conference and get to the nba finals nobody cares about how many regular season wins that you have all they care about is that you're peaking at the right time and that the team is fully healthy now the question is is this team good enough presently constituted to get through the gauntlet of the western conference i say and, and no that's and that's the big question, and we've talked about that, and we'll get more into it as the NBA season approaches. You, you look at the Clippers, you look at uh, the Nuggets, you look at the Mavericks, uh, the Pelicans. There, there is a lot going on in the Western Conference. Oh, oh, and the defending champions, Golden State Warriors. Didn't even talk about the Golden State Warriors that are going to impact how that goes. All right, B-Train, I'm going to let you get your glasses on so we can do dad jokes here before we wrap things up on the podcast. Uh, but we will, uh, like I said, we'll continue to keep an eye on that uh, as uh, as the NBA postseason approaches. Uh, but uh, now, for those uh, regular listeners to the podcast, know mm. one thing we always do as we wrap it up is uh, B Train gives us a dad joke, and uh, we will uh, we will turn it over to you, B Train. So, why did the bicycle fall over? Why did it fall over, B Train? Because it was too tired. (laughs) 
you know they're coming. You you know they're coming, and you're still. <laughs> oh come on, you that's a good one. That that's that no. I know we don't have the sound, but that's a good one. That that is a good one. I my barometer is like there's there's dad jokes, but then there's dad jokes that I can tell my wife, who's a school principal, <laughs> and, that, and that one will absolutely be on the morning announcements coming up at the school. <laughs> so we will definitely give you that. All right, fellas, for my partner, B-Train, Sean Crespin, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on next week's edition of Training Gross.